This morning we are jumping, I guess, back into the book of Hebrews. I guess that's where you guys have been. And uh, we have a lot to cover today, so I'm going to get started. Uh, let's look at the chapter, chapter 7 of Hebrews. Uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 25 in that chapter. So we got a big chunk. Uh, hopefully we'll get through them all this morning. Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 25. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham, uh, and it, to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior, inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of his weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it is not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such within, without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
a sense of a reading of God's inerrant word. May all who hear it find that they too have this high priest, Jesus Christ, interceding for them. So, the beginning of January, is that right when you guys started in the book of Hebrews? Right around then? And so far, uh, you've been, I think Bobby has led you, and Jared has led you in the first six chapters, is that correct? And so, my thanks to them. Um, this week we're jumping into a chapter that is uh, a little bit difficult to understand. Let me just put it that way. Um, but before I get into that, because I missed what was preached beforehand, I, I, I don't want to start off by making any assumptions. And so I thought it would be prudent for us to kind of take a, a step backwards and, and look at the greater context of this book of Hebrews. Um, and so first I, I want to look at the context of the, of the book as a whole, and then at the context that, of chapter 6, what, what happened just before chapter 7. Um, so, so the book as a whole, uh, let, let's start off by asking a few questions about this book. Like, who is the author, and, and to whom was he writing? What, what kind of book is this? What were the circumstances surrounding this book that, that such words were needed to be written? And so the first question, how, how about what, what kind of book is this? Well, the book of Hebrews is an epistle or a letter. And just like our letters today, it was written to a specific people during a specific time, and it was addressing a specific situation in those people's lives. It's a letter, right? Easy, right? We write letters all the time. But who's the author of this letter? Who, who wrote it? Honestly, we have no idea. For unlike most epistles that we find in our New Testament, this author, he doesn't give his name. He doesn't address himself. But just because we don't know who the author is, that doesn't mean we don't know anything about him. From the, from the context of this letter, we, we can guess that he was a trained scholar. Someone who knew his Old Testament very well. For throughout this book of Hebrews, he, he pulls from that knowledge that, like if he were a master chef, you know, sprinkling in the right amounts of spices and other ingredients, making sure that the flavor of the meat was accentuated to perfection. He, he knew his Old Testament. But not only was he trained in the scriptures, but he was also trained in the Greek language. For his use of the Greek is very eloquent, indicating that he was fluent. He, he, he was a wordsmith. Uh, scholars say that the book of Hebrews, the Greek there, is, is the best form of Greek that we have in the New Testament. Now, in the past, this letter has been often attributed to the Apostle Paul. And Paul would fit the description that I just gave. Yet, today, not many believe that this letter was written by him. For, for the manner in which this letter was written, it doesn't seem to follow, follow the style or the, the style of prose that, that Paul often wrote in. But then again, 
this book of Hebrews isn't your typical letter. For it is written more like a sermon, right? And perhaps that, that's what this was. A sermon that was later transposed into a letter. And so it's, it's very possible that there, there was more than one original audience. There would have been the folks who received this letter, but the, then there would have also been the, the, the church that first heard this sermon preached. <coughs> Either way, we, we know that this letter was intended for an audience that was made up of Jewish converts to the Christian faith. And the reason I say that is, is because the context demands it. For the very subject that is being addressed in this letter is, is a temptation to leave the Christian faith and, and to go back into Judaism. And the cause for that temptation was because of the mounting pressure and persecution that these believers were facing at that time. Now, when would this be written? What, what would be the time frame of when this letter would have been sent out? Well, we are probably looking at a span during the, the early to mid-60s AD, probably during the reign of Nero when persecution from Rome was beginning to ratchet up. And this makes sense because one of the easiest ways that a, that a Jewish believer in Jesus Christ could avoid such fiery trials would have been just to go back to their original Jewish faith. To go back to the law and to the temple system that was allowed by Rome at that time. Whatever the date, though, we, we definitely know that this letter was written prior to 70 AD. For our author, he... He indicates that at that time, sacrifices were, were still taking place at the temple. And yet, by 70 AD, we know that the temple was destroyed by the Romans. And so, it was definitely, definitely before AD 70. All this, all this to say, there was a good reason for this letter to be written, was there not? And, and here's the crux of the issue. This letter... This sermon, if you will, it was written to a people who were under heavy, heavy persecution. Who were being tempted to leave the faith and to go back to their old ways. To go back to the Jewish faith. And the reason they were doing that was because of this persecution. And so what our author is doing, he is making the case that to go back is foolishness. And it is foolishness because those old ways cannot save. Something better is needed. And that better thing is Jesus Christ. Jesus is better. And that, and that, that saying right there, Jesus is better, that really is the theme of this book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. Which brings us to chapter 7 in our text for today, where we see an argument being made that Jesus is a better high priest. Jesus is superior to the, to the priests that were currently serving in the temple in Jerusalem. But, but why is he making this case? What, what does this have to do with their circumstances? Well, let's go back just a little bit into chapter 6 to see the flow of the greater argument. 
In the start of this chapter, our author, he encourages his audience to become mature Christians. To, to not be stuck in the elementary teachings, but rather to move forward in their faith. And he then gives them this warning that, that to fall away after having been enlightened in these elementary teachings is a dangerous, dangerous thing to do. For it is an, an indication that such a person never really knew Jesus. That, that they really wanted to have no part of the true Jesus Christ. And yet our author, he, he remains confident that those who have remained in the faith are truly saved. That their deeds and, and, and their, their faith demonstrate that Christ is in them. That Christ is working in their lives. And then at, and then at the end of chapter 6, we read this. Look at, look at Hebrews 6, verses 17 through 20. Says this. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now remember the context. These folks, they were being tempted to flee Christianity and to go back to Judaism. These were people who, who had a need for security. They wanted to feel safe. They wanted a, a security that the, that the law couldn't bring. They wanted a rock that they could cling to and grab onto because they, they had seen so many of their own friends leaving the faith. They wanted certainty that God would watch over them watch over them because they were under heavy, heavy pressure of persecution. And so our author, he is now making the case for that security. For a God who cannot lie and has made an oath. An oath to bring hope. Hope to those who do not flee and yet instead seek refuge in God. And that hope is none other than Jesus Christ. This one who has gone before them into the inner sanctuary, acting as our high priest, interceding for us. Basically, our author is setting up an argument that our hope is placed on a sure promise that cannot be overturned or proved false. And he makes this argument by comparing Christ's priesthood to the priesthood of Melchizedek. Let's look at that argument and, and see how this plays out. Look at, look at chapter 7. Look at verses 1 through 3. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. 
He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now what our author is referencing here is a passage from Genesis 14, where this Melchizedek first appears in Scripture. And if you are at all familiar with Genesis, then you will know that, that this follows a, a narrative of Abraham and Lot. And Abraham, his nephew Lot, had chosen to move his family to the city of Sodom. And he did so thinking that, that, that his life would somehow become better and more secure if he lived near that city. And yet it was that city that was soon attacked and plundered by four kings. Lot and his family were taken captive, which led to this dramatic rescue on the part of Abraham. Abraham went to battle and defeated these four kings, taking the spoils of war and bringing his nephew and his whole family home safely. But it was after that battle that this king of Salem, this Melchizedek, suddenly just shows up out of nowhere. Look at, look at Genesis 14, verses 17 through 20. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shabbat, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, he was priest of the God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now what is interesting about this passage is that it that seemingly out of nowhere enters in this Melchizedek, who, who not only is a king, but is also a priest of God Most High. And that fact alone is enough to, to make any student of the Old Testament take notice, as this man is unique in his dual roles. For throughout the Old Testament, God has, has made this kind of this dividing wall, this distinction between those who would serve as kings and those who would serve as priests. And never would the two meet, except in this Melchizedek. And this is the first distinction that we should note. Melchizedek is both priest and king. Well, going back to our passage from Hebrews, we, we see that that this isn't the only thing that is distinctive about this man. First, our author points to the man's name, Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is a, is a combination of two Hebrew words. The, the, the word Melech, which means king, and Sedek, which means righteousness. And that's why we have this title, king of righteousness. But he's also king over Salem, right? And Salem means peace. And so he is also known as King of Peace. You, you see, what, what our author eventually wants to do is, is to draw this comparison between Melchizedek and Christ. And, and, and simply the, the name alone, we, we see this foreshadowing of our Lord, do we not? Of Jesus, the true King of Righteousness, the true King of Peace. 
there's more. For author then points out that this Melchizedek was without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, and so he is a priest forever. Here's where the waters get a little money, right? Now, how can this author, author make this claim? How, how can he say that this Melchizedek has an eternal priesthood? Look, look at Psalm 110, verse 4. This will be quoted later on in our passage, but let's look at it right now. It says this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of of Melchizedek. Now, Psalm 110 is probably the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It is a messianic psalm written by King David. And in this psalm, he, he prophesied that the Savior to come would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In, in fact, God had sworn an oath, an oath that, that the Messiah's priesthood would last forever. Now, does that mean that Melchizedek's priesthood is also eternal? In one sense, yes, and in another sense, no. Now, in order for me to explain this, I'm going to have to wade more than knee-deep through these theological waters, so bear with me for a moment. In our Sunday school this morning, we, we talked about the name Genesis, right? It's a, it's a Greek title for the first book of the Bible. Who here remembers what Genesis means? In the beginning, it means beginning, origin, um, genealogy. Yeah, and, and so it's it's got this kind of variation of of meanings. Uh, it's, it's origin would probably be the most basic meaning, uh, but when it comes to the book of Genesis is particularly talking about birth or lineage, descent, um, genealogy, generations. And, and when you outline the book of Genesis, we talked about this as well, you will see that it's broken up into these genealogies. In fact, every time you, you see the beginnings of a new major thread in this book, it, it starts off with a genealogy. And yet this Melchizedek is left off any of the, these genealogical lists. And that's why our author can claim that he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. And, and so the point is not that Melchizedek is some supernatural being without origin or finality, but that in the book of Genesis, we, we, we find nothing about this man's genealogy, nor about his birth, nor about his death. And that's why the psalmist David states prophetically that the Messiah would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so we see that there is something unique about the priesthood of Melchizedek. Not only is he a priest king, not only is he the king of righteousness and the king of peace, but he is also a priest forever. But this argument for his uniqueness continues. Look at verses 4 through 10 back in Hebrews 7. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office 
have, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior, inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one who it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. You see, the, 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 the Levites, they were only priests because of their genealogy, because of their birth. But Melchizedek was a priest because he was appointed one by God's word. In other words, he, he was not a priest because his daddy was a priest. Rather, he was chosen by God. And this is exactly what we saw in Psalm 110, that this coming Messiah would be appointed as a high priest. Not because of his lineage, rather because of an oath from God. But the comparison here is between Melchizedek and the Levites, those who became priests because of the law of Moses, because they had the right family lineage, and, those who became, and that who became a priest because of an oath. And our author, he is making the case that because Abraham gave a tenth to this Melchizedek, that Melchizedek was greater. And because Abraham, the father of the tribe of Levi, because he was their father, then that makes the priesthood of Melchizedek superior to the priesthood of the Levites. But why this argument? Why go to all this trouble to contrast these ancient priests to the priesthood of Moses? Because it lays a foundation for the point that the author really wants to make. That Jesus' priesthood is far better, far superior than the Levitical priesthood. For in, if Christ's priesthood, if, if he is after the order of Melchizedek, then that would mean that, that it is a priesthood that is also superior. That his priesthood is better. Let's see that point being made. Look at, look at verses 11 through 14. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Let's focus on the, the, the first sentence of these verses. It says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood. This word perfection is tele, teleosis in the Greek. And it doesn't mean without flaws. Rather, it means complete or, or reaching fulfillment. 
And so what our author is communicating here is that God's desired end was not attainable through the Levitical priesthood. But what is the desired end in the work of a priest? Is it not reconciliation between God and man through the forgiveness of sins? I mean, that was their function, was it not? That, that, that's why they made all those animal sacrifices at the altar. So that these sinful people could find forgiveness from their God and dwell with their God. And yet true forgiveness of sins, true reconciliation with God could not be achieved through the covenant under Moses. And thus a new covenant had to be established. But in order for this new covenant to take effect, there needed to be a change in the priesthood. And this is why God had to establish his new high priest. Not one based on his lineage, but rather one based on an oath. Based on a promise from God. And it's not that these Old Testament Levites failed. Rather, their work was incomplete. They could only do so much. For, for the work of the Levitical priesthood, it was only meant to be a shadow of what was to come. The reality of the matter it was that this old priesthood, they did its job. They did their job. For, for they were a marker, if you will, for another priesthood that was coming. A, a compass pointing forward to something better. To, to someone better. And so there needed to be this change in the law. For, for under Moses, only those from the tribe of Levi were granted the right to become priests. But Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi, but from the tribe of Judah. And so there needed to be this change in the law. And that brings us right back to Psalm 110, does it not? To the oath that God had made. Look again at Hebrews 7, verses 15 through 17. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so the basis of Christ's priesthood is not in his ancestry, Rather, it is based on his immortality, on his indestructible life. And this is why the psalmist can claim that Jesus is a priest forever. It was just last Sunday that we celebrated Easter, right? That we celebrated the resurrection of our Lord. That we celebrated the, the, the one that though he died, yet he lives. For Jesus defeated death, and thus he lives forever. And it is through both his death and his resurrection that this new covenant, this, this wonderful covenant is established. That this better covenant is set in stone. Let's continue on. Look at, look at verses 18 and 19. For on the one hand, a, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced 
through which we draw near to God. Now when our author calls this former commandment weak and useless, what he's not saying is that it was ineffective. Rather, he is describing what we discussed earlier, that it was unable to bring about true reconciliation. And that is why it needed to be set aside. It was just a pointer for what has now come, to the, to the better thing that is now here, to this better priesthood that produces a better hope, a hope that allows God's people to draw near to God in a true sense. You see, this, this priesthood under Jesus Christ, it accomplishes its desired end. It brings the reconciliation between God and man through the forgiveness of sins. It brings sinful man into God's throne room through justification. A justification that can only come through the cross of Jesus Christ. In other words, it brings completion to what the former commandment could only foreshadow. Dear friends, I, I hope you understand that the law cannot save you. The best it can do is show you your need for something better. And in fact, that is its primary purpose. To point out how much you fall short. To point out your sins. It's there to condemn. But it's also there to point you to the only one who can actually rescue you. Look at, look at Romans 3, verses 19 through 22. Listen to Paul's word. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Can I get an amen? You see, the law under Moses was never meant to save you. It was never meant to give you the impression that, that somehow through your own efforts you could be reconciled to God. Rather, it was meant to show you your weakness. It, it was meant to show you your need for this better high priest. Your need for this one who can, who can bring you fully into God's presence in spite of your sins. Listen, Jesus is not a do-over. He is the completion. He is perfection. He, he is the one to whom the law points. For he is a better high priest. He is a high priest forever. And because he is a priest forever, the good news is that his priesthood will not change. Go back to Hebrews 7. Look at verses 20 through 22. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. 
that makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Over the past few months, I have both bought and sold a home. And if there's anything that I have learned from this process is that a deal is never set in stone until that final day of closing. Conditions and terms are constantly in flux. But the priesthood of Jesus Christ is not like that. And the reason it's not like that is because this priesthood was established through an oath from God. Through, through the oath of the one who does not lie and does not change his mind. And so there is no danger of this priesthood changing in the future. It is not as if today you can draw near to God through the saving work of Jesus Christ, and yet, and yet tomorrow that promise will be null and void. That you will have to figure out some new way of being reconciled to God. No. The priestly work of Jesus Christ was established upon an oath from God. And that is why Jesus is our guarantor of a better covenant. And thus our hope is established on the strongest of terms. And that, my friends, that is why Jesus is a better high priest. Better than those who served under Moses. Look at verses 23 and 24. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. You see, from one year to the next, the Israelites, they were never guaranteed consistency in the priesthood. Men would die and leadership would change hands. And this was because they were established not through an oath, but through their lineage. And thus they were priests of a lesser quality. And they brought a priesthood that did not last. And so once again, we see that this former way was inadequate. But Jesus is a priest forever. And his priesthood is unchanging. He is immortal. And he will hold this office forever. And because of that fact, he brings a security, a security that those priests of old could never deliver. And this is exactly what we see in the last verse. Because of Jesus' indestructible life, we see that he is able to save completely. Look at verse, look at verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Isn't that great news? Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. And the reason he can do this is because his priesthood, it lasts forever. Because he is constantly before his father, interceding for us. Listen, Jesus, he, he doesn't just save us and then, and then sends it, send us off on our way. No. Rather, he is always working within us, molding us and, and shaping us into his image. In other words, there is no limitation on his mediation that he brings between God and man. 
his priestly ministry brings about a complete salvation. Complete in that it not only offers immediate deliverance from sins, which is our justification, but it, but it also perfects those who come to God through him throughout all time, which is our sanctification. And so if you are in Christ at this moment, then he is making you holy even as I speak. And he will continue to do so until you have reached perfection, completion, which is your glorification. And this, this, my friends, is why your hope is secure. It's why you do not need to fall back to those old patterns, to those old ways of life. It's why you don't need to put your trust in your own efforts, in your own good deeds, in a law that cannot save. For you have a better high priest in Jesus Christ. And in this one after the order of Melchizedek. And this one who, who is both priest and king. And this one who is a king of righteousness and the king of peace. And this one who was called by an oath. And this one who is a priest forever. And this one who can give you entrance into heaven's throne room as you draw near to God. And the reason he can do this is because he is always there reconciling you to his Father. Jesus Christ he is the sure and steadfast anchor of your soul. He is your security. Because he is your high priest forever. Let us pray. Father, we come to you today knowing that our hope is secure because of your son, Jesus Christ. That even at this moment, he is by your side interceding for us. Help us to trust in his work. And to gain our security in knowing that, that he truly is our high priest forever. We ask that you would work within each and every one of us today by the power of your Holy Spirit. So that we would not be tempted to go back to our old ways. To go back to a system that is, that is not perfect, that is not complete, to a system that does not save. Rather, help us to trust in your Son and in the perfect, perfect ways of his priesthood. We pray this in Jesus' name.